are listening to The Tender Heart of Strange Times, a series of audio love notes during this strange time to be alive from the Yoga Writer Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Carroll. Thank you so much for listening. This audio love note today is all about the precious lessons we can learn from two of our most unlikely teachers, rage and grief. So yeah, really light material. But the truth is we're not living in light times. And it's fair to say, as a whole collective of humanity, we never were. So it's really important that those of us on a spiritual path don't love and light ourselves into spiritual bypassing or toxic positivity while still grounding into our spiritual tools for our own resilience, for healing and compassion for ourselves and for others, and ultimately for our growth. And so I'm going to guess that you're a seeker, just like me. And you're probably also an eternal student. You probably love learning. There are, of course, the traditional teachers, like your favorite yoga instructor or your high school English teacher that, you know, inspired you and encouraged you. And then, of course, there are the unlikely teachers, the ones who hide in the annoying people who challenge you and force you to grow. You know, it's like if you say you want to learn patience, watch out, because you're not suddenly going to be blessed with a thunderbolt of patience from Zeus or something. You're going to be blessed with all sorts of irritating people and scenarios that test your patience. It reminds me of how Ram Dass says everyone is God in drag, right? There are all these lessons just hiding out, waiting to be learned for our evolution. So for this episode, we are going to explore two of our best and most unlikely teachers, our teachers in drag, if you will, grief and rage. And how lucky for us, these teachings, these teachers, they're everywhere these days. But in all seriousness, grief is one of the most, if not the most powerful teacher. And I believe pretty much all of us are grieving in various ways this year, some directly. Grief is the only container for their experience right now, as it should be. Some are grieving for lost loved ones, for their own health, for lost jobs, lost opportunities, for the past, the future, the present, not being quite what we wished it would be. And the collective weight of our loss feels immense and immeasurable right now. I know many of you can feel that gravity because you're empathic and and you're sensitive. And however it is manifesting in your body, in your energy field, or in your mood, my hope and my encouragement is that you can hold space for all you're feeling with loads of self-compassion. I found in a strange way that zooming out of this time in history and gazing back at humanity's long and difficult course 
helps offer some much needed perspective. Not to diminish the pain of the moment, but to simply expand our awareness. Because as you know, since the dawn of time, humans have constantly engaged in vicious wars, in vicious genocides. There's been constant oppressions, such as the oppressions of indigenous peoples that are, of course, still going on today. All of this is still going on today in the world. And of course, history is also rife with famines, with plagues, you name it. Now, for many of us, those words and those events have seemed far away, as if they were encased in museum glass. They were set aside for a distant era, a distant place. But now they're becoming more real and more urgent. And some people are unconsciously or consciously grieving for the life they once knew. That grief might show up as frustration or anger or wishing this whole COVID stuff would just go by quickly so we can quote unquote get back to normal. A phrase, by the way, that I don't agree with because I believe that it denies the medicine of the process. It denies the key insights and lessons that you can receive from this painful, difficult unfolding. And if you just are constantly wishing it away, then you're denying yourself of this incredible opportunity if you wish to view it that way and again that's not to diminish suffering at all there's a place for suffering there's a realness to suffering and there are many life-changing lessons for you in this time if you are open to seeing it that way wishing things would be different is normal of course the buddhists call this state dukkha which often translates to a dissatisfaction with the present moment. Dukkha is like that nagging feeling that things would be so much better if they were different. It technically, by the way, refers to a wonky axle on a wagon wheel. Yes, you heard me right. Though I doubt Milarepa and the other Buddhist sages were using the term wonky a thousand years ago. And when you're trying to chug along on your path, you're trying to go about your business and your daily life on your wagon, but part of your wheel is messed up, there's this constant rhythmic thud, you know? It's annoying and and you wish it were different. Things would be easier if it were different. Things would be better for you. That's dukkha. This is to say that we're not supposed to be lie down complacent with dukkha. If you can fix the damn wheel, well then fix the damn wheel. (laughs) However, if we can't fix the damn wheel, if the wheel is the world or, oh, let's say a global pandemic, and we deny ourselves the experience of feeling into difficulty, of leaning into the difficult emotions or thoughts or sensations that arise. If we just outright want to shove anything that the mind labels as unpleasant away, 
if we try to repress it with every escapist tactic we have in our tool belts, then we deny ourselves the incredible, luminous, and rich rewards that actually lie in the heart of the experience. This, by the way, is the foundation of shadow work, the process that you probably know if you know me or you know the, the work that I do, you know that I'm obsessed with shadow work. It's absolutely life-changing and this year is, for lack of a better term, it's, it's a ripe opportunity to investigate our own shadows and the collective shadows as well. So grief, wow, what a powerful teacher. The biggest lesson this guru has taught me has been tenderness. And through that tenderness, more kindness, more humility, more compassion. Now those traits, kindness, humility, compassion, those are great treasures on the spiritual path on the life path, really. And you can access them in powerful ways through the difficult teacher of grief. Grief is different than other emotions because there's truly no escaping it. I mean, you could engage in escapist behaviors such as alcohol, food, sex, drugs, online shopping. Many do, but even then, you can only run from grief for so long. Eventually, you gotta feel it. Grief is too damn powerful. Grief is like oil. It'll seep into every crevice, every nook of your life. This is a teacher that demands attention. But here's the thing. There's a softening that occurs when you allow yourself to be enveloped in grief when you surrender to it. That surrender might not feel all that sweet. It might feel in moments like exhaustion or depletion or anger or weariness or emptiness. Yet, through this immensely difficult state, a softening can happen. And it can happen physically, emotionally, mentally. Because grief is such a powerful force that everything else that is unneeded will be swept away. If you're grieving and just for a moment or for a few moments you can observe your own experience in the witness mind, it's like watching vulnerability unfold. And vulnerability is, as you know, deeply powerful. Vulnerability is strength, but it doesn't come through pretending to be tough or closing off to the pain or staying calm and keeping on. Vulnerability comes through surrendering into the flow of your own experience. This relaxing into the experience may make the sensations that you're feeling more acute for a while, or they may make them softer and it will likely flux from feeling acute to feeling soft, as human emotions and thought patterns and moods are always in flux. We are not meant to be static. Nothing is. 
And I want to acknowledge the intense suffering that happens during grief or rage for that matter. The suffering, honestly, just plain sucks. I know that and you know that. But the astonishing piece of tenderness is a unique gift that I've discovered from grief in my own life these past few months and perhaps this can help you too if you're going through it. In August of 2020, in my yoga community, we suddenly lost a very, very dear friend. He, his name was John Reimer, and he was really just a genuinely kind soul. He went out of his way to always be helpful, and, and he did it purely. It wasn't out of ego. It was just to be nice, because that's how he was wired. He always spoke very slowly. He moved methodically. And when he was with you, he was fully present for you. He wasn't always rushing around trying to get to the next moment like, like I often am. He never did things to boost his own ego. He never lived for self-aggrandizement. And I, he really never spoke badly of anyone except for, for Trump and a few other politicians. And I never fully felt the gravity of all of those amazing qualities John possessed while he was alive. He was just a nice guy to me. He's just a nice guy in my yoga community. But now... In the wake of his absence, I ruminate on the person he was in the incredible heft and gravity of his absence. I am humbled to the core by the person that he was. And I hope that this humility and this new awareness will carve me into a better human being, a human being more like John and in a way that it can honor his life. And now, the second guru walks in the door, kicks the door down, actually, screaming, fuming, with gripped muscles and eyes glittering. Good old rage. Now my own rage astonishes me. And for my whole childhood, I thought I was a terrible person whenever I felt angry. That anger soured into guilt and shame. And a deep clinical depression set in. Total side note, that wasn't the only catalyst for my depression because mental illness is multifaceted and complex. But I believe that one factor of my depression was my own inability to understand or cope with or work with my anger in a healthy way at such a young age. The depression kicked in when I was nine and it began to dissolve at 22 when I discovered Buddhist meditation and Reiki, a Japanese healing modality. So it might be easy to dismiss rage and just want to get it out of your house as quickly as possible, the house of your heart, as quickly as possible. Rage is like an obnoxious drunk who shows up to your party. You don't really want him there. But rage, too, is a guru, just well-disguised. You probably know that Ram Dass quote that says everyone is God in drag, right? <laughs> that our teachers are showing up all the time. Some are just really, really well-disguised. <laughs> so before rage can teach you anything... 
You've got to be willing to see rage as a teacher. And this is where most of us stop ourselves. And I do want to say this. Rage is often purposeful. Rage is often purposeful, especially if you are outraged at the injustices, at the violence, at the dismissal of the pain and suffering going on in the world. If no one were ever outraged by injustice, then we'd never see any progress in this world. France would still be a monarchy. In this country, in the United States, women would still not be allowed to vote. Slavery or segregation would still be socially acceptable if people didn't feel like enough is enough. All of those upheavals throughout history have occurred when the people have decided when they got mad enough, when a spark was lit. And, you know, oftentimes you can't be completely chill when you're fighting for human rights. I mean, I mean, you can be pretty chill, and I do believe there's a happy medium, and that's actually what I'm hoping to explore here and now. So if you are outraged these days, Maybe you're outraged by white supremacy. Maybe you're outraged by the treatment of the people being held in ICE detention centers. Maybe you are outraged by the systemic racism and violence toward people of color. Then I am not here to tell you to douse those flames. My hope is that this exploration can help you work with your feelings in ways that are not self-destructive or destructive to others but are in fact useful. Because for many of us, especially those on the spiritual path, we have been taught that anger is outright bad. Maybe not directly taught that anger is bad, but let's be honest, pretty much every single image of virtuous modern day spirituality is like a V-chill white lady sitting in lotus pose on a beach or some variation of that. And this barrage of images, this barrage of modern day spiritual rhetoric soaks into your subconscious mind. And it does that whether you like it or not. Imagery, rhetoric, it's not asking for your consent. That's why it's so powerful. And that's why it's frankly so dangerous. And you might think, oh no, Melissa, I'm impervious to that messaging. I I definitely, it's not going to get me. I'm too conscious. But I got to be honest with you. We are all susceptible. You and me. I know. Even us. And I know you're extremely smart. I know that because you're listening to this. (laughs) But it's true. This is actually how shadow work also operates because it recognizes that messaging conditioned beliefs get into the deeper parts of our consciousness labeled as the subconscious or the unconscious. And these create deep-seated thought patterns. And for many of us, and maybe you too, You have been ingrained to believe that anger is bad. And again, it's not even conscious. It's a part of your shadow. So just as we don't see our shadow directly, it's behind us, but it's still connected to us. That's the image 
and the metaphor that we utilize in shadow work and this way of working with the deeper layers of our attention, of our consciousness. So maybe like me, you've got this conditioned belief because frankly, it is totally normal for our subconscious to process cultural messages without our awareness or again, our consent. And this is why you might get angry and then you might immediately judge yourself for feeling angry. Or you might feel vindication or resentment or vengeance, one of anger's good uh, cousins, boil up. And then you shame yourself for those feelings too. And you try to push them out of your head and out of your heart. But it doesn't work like that. You're just shoving your anger deeper into your shadow where it will lie and fester and then it will pop up the moment you get triggered by something, perhaps a Facebook post, let's just say. This is, again, extremely common and extremely normal, especially if you have been a part of the wellness world or been on a spiritual path if you're into yoga or meditation or anything like that. This is a big problem with the messaging in the wellness world. So here's what I do because I am naturally an angry little Italian from New York with a pitta prakriti and man do I get pissed. And sometimes if I'm not careful my rage will engulf me. It's the fire element, and that's what happens with fire on occasion, you know? It consumes. But sometimes I can watch it, just like I can watch my grief. The practice of entering into the witness mind, the non-judging observer, is key for working with all of these emotional and mental states. By the way, The way I tap into the witness mind is through a simple yet very potent mindfulness meditation and pranayama practice that I will be leading in the next audio love note. It's just going to be a straight up guided meditation and pranayama practice for you if you're into that or you could just use a little bit of uh, guidance on on the path. So when I watch my rage What I'm doing in that mindful, observant state is not letting myself get swept into the story. And usually it's the story of, quote, how dare they, unquote. And by the way, I love that story. Oh my gosh. The how dare they story. Mm, It is so delicious. It feeds my ego like, mm, like a nutritious smoothie or something. Anyway, (laughs) the how dare they story, it can manifest as how dare they not do what I want? How dare they not anticipate my needs? How dare they not agree with me? This has been a massive story for me in 2020. Has it been a big story for you too? How dare they not agree with me? Because I'm, I'm right. <laughs> and if you have, if you know Ayurveda and you know your dosha, your constitution, your prakriti, and you know you got a lot of fire element in you to start with, you got a lot of pitta in you to start with, well, then you are predisposed to this line of thought, my friend. But it's okay because 
anger, rage, they are not outright negative states. They can easily become destructive, just like fire. It can easily become destructive. But when we can manage it and when we can work with it in conscious and healthy ways, well, then it can change your life for the better. I mean, think of how fire has transformed the course of humanity. The the moment humans were able to use fire to cook their meat or to light torches, to light the caves that they were dwelling in, everything began to change. And the course of our evolution shifted. It's tremendous what can happen when you work skillfully with fire. But as we have seen also throughout humanity's span thus far, up until this very day, this very moment that you're listening to this, there's a lot of unskillful use of anger as well. A lot of unskillful use of this fire. So when I am in that non-judging, observing space, when you can get to that space for yourself, you can still see your story and not deny your story. You can see that your story is valid, right? <laughs> like, it, okay, I have this story and uh, I, and it's not wrong and I'm not bad for having it. But you can see, you can sense your response, the anger, not as an all-consuming emotion, but as a physical sensation. And anger, rage, often is applied as heat, of course. If you can sense your anger as a physical expression versus a mental emotional expression, then you can zoom out of it. It's like standing at a safe distance from a bonfire, you know? You can watch it, you can feel the warmth on your skin, you might take a step closer and then it starts to get really hot on your skin, but you're cautious and conscious enough not to let yourself get burned. And if you can do that, then rage can teach you things. Rage can show you where the work is. Both the work of potential injustice, where you need to go out in the world and do more actions, or you need to stand up for yourself if you're not being treated properly, if you need to set clearer and stronger boundaries, if you need to make big changes, rage can show you where you need to do that in your own personal life and in the greater collective web as well. Rage can also show you where the work of compassion is in your own heart. Rage can show you where you're still caught in the illusion of separation. Thich Nhat Hanh has this incredible quote. He says, Practice until you see yourself in the cruelest person on earth. Practice until you see yourself in the cruelest person on earth. Damn, right? I have personally really needed to hear that these days. The great spiritual teacher Ram Das, he used to in his talks he used to say how he would place George Bush's picture on his altar next to the photos of his other gurus like Neem Karoli Baba so that he could work on opening his heart of compassion 
for a political leader when compassion did not naturally arise for him. And that was his practice. He would gaze upon the image of his beloved guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and love would just naturally open up his heart, that warmth. If you do that right now, if you think about someone you genuinely love, a, your dearest friend or your dearest family member, whoever it is, your pet, someone that when even just the mere image of their face comes into your imagination, you get that, that loving sweetness, that nectar pouring forth from your heart, right? So that's the practice. You show it towards someone who's, it's easy for you and it's naturally arising. And then you can take that and start to direct it or work on it for someone who it does not naturally arise for. And I think that's so helpful to remember that compassion may not naturally arise in you. And it doesn't make you a bad person. If you're a yoga teacher and you still get cranky or anxious or depressed or flaming, flip out mad sometimes, you're not a bad yoga teacher. You're just not. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, You're still allowed to go out and teach yoga. We've all got work to do. We've all got work to do. And it's okay that compassion may not naturally rise up in you all the time. It doesn't in me. I joke with people who tell me, uh, oh, Melissa, you're so happy all the time. I hear that a lot. And I hear it from my yoga students. And frankly, I tell them, well, you should have met me before yoga and meditation. I mean, I was still a nice person, but it's only because of yoga and meditation that I have been able to cultivate these virtuous qualities that have rewired me. They've made me a genuinely happier person. That's it. Without practicing, without practicing, Metta, loving-kindness meditation, without practicing Nadi Shodhana, uh, the channel-cleansing breath, without reading so many wisdom books, I wouldn't be the person I am. Anger comes so easily to me, it's like a fucking talent, seriously. So, you know, I gotta work at it. When compassion uh, isn't instinctive, I have to cultivate it. And these days... It's a lot of work. It's a lot of extra work because compassion is not always instinctive for me, especially when I read things in the news or I scroll on social media. And and that's okay. Um, I have a lot of work to do. Maybe you've got a lot of work to do too. But the alternative is to be swallowed in the flames of our anger. And I know from experience that that is not helpful or useful for myself or anyone else. Just the other day, I was honestly so shocked at my response to the news. It wasn't the Bodhisattva view, let me tell you. (laughs) So my instinct was to immediately, in a very unconscious way, judge myself. Those unconscious thoughts happen so fast. Nanoseconds, smaller than a nanosecond. Those, Those inner judgments, those inner criticisms, the thought came up. Oh, Melissa, you should be so beyond this. You should naturally feel compassion. But you know what? I didn't. 
and wishing my thoughts and emotions were naturally different ain't gonna change them. It's only going to lock me into a shame spiral. The same is true for you. You can't just wish that you were nicer. You can't just wish that you were the Dalai Lama and that because you're not, you're inherently bad. It doesn't work like that. So you can acknowledge that and you can see your anger as a flashlight pointing to where you've got to do more work. And, you know, maybe you have got to put some photos of some current political leaders on your altar. And, you know, maybe you're going to need a bigger altar. (laughs) I, I certainly am these days. And by the way, you probably already know this, but the disclaimer, I feel, is needed. Feeling compassion has absolutely nothing to do with condoning behaviors. In fact, part of working with Rage is holding yourself responsible, holding yourself accountable. Um, Part of working with your rage might involve calling your representatives. It might involve investing and supporting uh, business owners and uh, authors who are putting things out there in the world that you believe in and that you want to support. It might involve donating to causes that you care about. So... There you have it. Two great teachers, grief and rage. Maybe they've come calling on you these days. And if so, please, please know that you are not alone. You are never alone. We are all woven together. We are all woven together, like it or not. And it has long been known on the spiritual journey that if you do this inner work, it will ripple outward and create healing, transformative shifts, not just within you, but within your families, your neighborhoods, and your communities. And I just wanted to close with that full quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. These words are so powerful and so beautiful, and I hope you find them as inspiring as I do. He says, practice until you see yourself in the cruelest person on earth, in the child starving, in the political prisoner. Continue until you recognize yourself in everyone in the supermarket, on the street corner, in a concentration camp, on a leaf, in a dewdrop. Meditate until you see yourself in a speck of dust in a distant galaxy. See and listen with the whole of your being. If you are fully present, the rain of Dharma will water the deepest seeds in your consciousness. And tomorrow, while you are washing the dishes or looking at the blue sky, that seed will spring forth and love and understanding will appear as a beautiful flower. Thank you so much for listening to The Tender Heart of Strange Times, a series of audio love notes. I've been your host, Melissa Carroll.